Hello Valparaiso, this is Willow Walsh, and I'm with Allison Schutte, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants form stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asai Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during this pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. The music today is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you memory and resources from the Welcome Project's Flights Initiative, in which historian Dr. Heath Carter introduces us to the challenges of working with memory. So listen up. All right, it's good to be back with you all today. We're we're actually doing something slightly different because as we listen to our historian today, um, we're talking about this concept of memory. And so Willow and I are both really interested in memory, not only because of our work on the Welcome Project, but as writers um, and creative nonfiction writers in particular who are often thinking about their own experience or other people's experience. So the role that memory plays has been important for us to understand. So we might be bringing in some extra material as we try to best understand what Dr. Carter has for us today. And I also think it might help you um, if you have never listened to our show before or if you just need a refresher. I wanted to give you just a really quick snapshot of some of the early history of Gary because the Flight Paths Initiative is our um, oral history collection that really focuses on Northwest Indiana. In particular, we're interested in the 1960s and 70s in Gary, Indiana, and the rise of the civil rights movement and the white flight um, that happened as a kind of backlash to that. Not only in Gary, of course, but across the country. So um, I think in order to understand where Dr. Carter picks up in the 60s, it's useful for you to know that Gary itself as a city was founded in 1906 and essentially was built up out of U.S. steel. Uh, The company was very interested in recruiting workers, and so that happened in large part through immigration, initially from Eastern Europe and from Mexico, and then eventually from the American South with the African-American Great Migration and also recruitment from Puerto Rico. The city developed very much segregated, which is also not atypical for American cities. Some of that was organic because immigrant communities, you know, they shared their own language and their culture and they gravitated towards each other. Uh, But some of it actually was imposed that segregation was imposed through federal policies and real estate practices that incorporated racism, especially anti-Black racism, into their understanding of who should live with whom. After World War II, that racial segregation became increasingly problematic and contested, especially as Black GIs returned from fighting for America only to re-experience pretty tremendous discrimination. So the civil rights movement comes into full fruition during the early 1960s. And then the social order on which much of the U.S. has been founded becomes increasingly unstable. So we're going to let Dr. Carter pick it up from here. And I think it's interesting to notice how the lessons that he's drawing from history are also lessons we're still learning today.
Hello, you're with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio on WVLP. Thanks for joining us today. So, okay, the first thing that really stuck out to me is this idea that Dr. Carter started with, and that he said that historians are finding stories that challenge people's memories and challenge people's self-understanding in terms of how we got here. And that seems like a like, that seems like it doesn't add up to me, right? It's just like, memory is memory. How does that challenge what has happened? Like, how could our understanding of the past challenge, like, a historian's narrative of something? That must mean that, like, something's not adding up, right? Like, I would think that, like, all of us could remember enough to put together this story and it would be an accurate representation. But it sounds like mm-hmm. that's not entirely true based on what Dr. Carter said. So, like, if we just... It's like an addition problem. You know, you just, or not a problem, but like an equation. Yeah. Just add one person's memory to one person's memory to another person's memory to another person's memory. And suddenly you have this full picture. Yeah. Yeah. And he's suggesting that that's not the case. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I definitely, I definitely think that one of the things that we're going to explore today is how we have these ideas about memory as objective, like, cameras or audio recorders or something that have just like um like recorded all of our experience onto these reel to reels or onto our mp3 streaming platforms and what we find is actually there's so much more that's going to go into um what creates memory and so it's not this simple equation really that's going to give us an objective picture of of our public life together I, I don't know if if this is a good way to go towards that or not, but I was struck by how Dr. Carter up top says, like, the work of historians is sort of dangerous or edgy. Yeah. Like, how did you, I mean, I think it's related to this question of our assumptions about how memory is supposed to work, and then the historians making this counter suggestion, but how did you read the dangerous edgy work of historians. Yeah, so I think it has something to do with the idea that like this collective sort of memory thing isn't this perfect equation, like memory plus memory plus memory, and then here we go, we have the 100% scope. So I think what's dangerous about that is like challenging that idea that like maybe not everybody's memory is as 100% as we think it is. Yeah. And so I think there's some work there in terms of saying, he, and he's saying we're not going to bang people over the heads with history books, right? So there, there's there's some important work that has to happen there to say, like, this is your story. This is your lived experience. You're not necessarily lying about your experience, but we actually have these these tools, this evidence, this data to help fully structure these memories that might not. I mean, I guess what I'm understanding from this is that people's memories aren't necessarily 100% true. They're not as valid as we think they are. So I think part of the, the charge for historians is to, is to sort of weave through that oral history and understand well, what's what can we prove here that's real through evidence what can we look at images and documents and, and see for real and, and what if it just doesn't add up what 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 parts of these memories aren't, aren't held up through this evidence that we have and so i think i don't i guess the dangerous part maybe not for the historians but like this idea of like you know it's like i believe all my memories are perfectly fine right it's like yeah. i have a good memory i I remember things, you know, so if somebody were to tell me like, hey, actually that memory you have isn't entirely true, 
I mean, that would, I might get a little combative. Like, <laughs> hey, I remember my memories. So, I mean, I think there is something there, right, that people hold on to these memories, whether or not they're entirely truthful. And so I think that's kind of the charge that he's bringing up here is that yeah, that figuring out part. Yeah. I, I find your language interesting. You said not true, not valid. And I... Um, like, I feel like definition is so much at play in all mm. of this. Like, is an inaccurate memory untrue? Mm. Is an inaccurate memory not valid? Like, if by truth we mean factual, we could potentially, with the historians, notice that actually, yeah, maybe these memories aren't true because they're not factual. But if we mean true as like a kind of, accurate self-understanding, then they remain true even if they're not factual. So then it seems like maybe they could still be valid even if they're no longer factually true. So I, I again, we're sort of getting ahead a little bit, but that is that seems to be the, the problem that is um, potentially putting the, the historians in this awkward position <laughs> as people look look on what they're doing as, kind of infringing somehow yeah. on on their self-understanding. I mean, I'm I'm wanting to stay with him for a little bit longer, but um if you want to bring in some extra stuff at any point, I think I think we should do that. But I was really struck by how as he sets up the problem for oral history or himself as a historian in the light of oral history that for Gary in the 60s, he's really stressing how much the social order is being challenged and that things are changing. Um, norms are challenged. New leadership is coming into power. And I wonder why you think he makes so much of that. Like, why does he think that's worth emphasizing as he begins to think about how people are going to remember this time in Gary? Yeah, so I think it's really important that he calls that out, right? Like, specifically the change and specifically these big changes. Like, we're talking about a change in leadership, which I'm assuming here to mean, like, the election of Richard Merrick Gordon Hatcher in the 1960s. And I, I, I don't think before I watched, I actually watched a show. It's called The Mind Explained on Netflix. And it features um, this neuroscientist, Elizabeth Phelps, and she talks about the, the sort of idea that these big memories are kind of ingrained in our like understanding of ourselves. So she's interviewing people like in their 70s and she's created a chart of points in people's lives where they remember things. Like before three years old, not really. Mm -hmm. it's, it spikes a lot in like the high school 20s era because there's so many changes happening there. You're graduating, oh. you're going to school, you're yeah. getting married. And then it actually sort of filters down through like your 30s, 40s, and 50s. But these big moments that happen at the beginning, this is where actually people have a lot of memories. Huh. And so that's, that's what this made me think of in terms of like these big changes, that, yeah. that these would be like big markers for people that, that would stick in their mind for a long time. And so I think that's that's what's important to kind of call out here is that specifically people would probably have a lot of memories around this. Yeah, because everything's feeling like the ground is shifting below you. So as you try to get your bearing, you start to pay attention yeah. in a way that maybe embeds those experiences as memories. Is that what the... Totally, yeah. Okay, that's that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about like that this sort of heightened sense of an experience is what might actually contribute to it landing <laughs> in, 
in our memory. Though I, I suppose on like self-reflection, that that sort of makes obvious sense. It's like the emotional, the particularly emotional moments in my life that I'm like that I can recall um, pretty easily. So that makes a lot of sense. I also feel like if there's a lot of big social changes going on at the time, like public narratives are are actually also being contested. So how other people are interpreting like generally our civic life together is is um not necessarily going to make sense anymore because the old way the old framework we used is being like disintegrated or disrupted. And so change on that level makes it harder to even interpret what's happening as we try to hold on to what we used to know, but like experiences like changing in front of us. So, I mean, I guess that's just another way of saying like that the intensity of experience is really, is really highlighted at this moment in history for people. Yeah. And I think with that, it's like, because it's such, there's so many changes that are happening, we're getting a lot of collective memories around that time. And I feel like that's what I mean, when I think about flight paths, I mean, that's that's really the, the meat of it, right? There, there's so many different stories specifically around this time period. And there, there's a lot of different perspectives that we have here, too. And so I think in terms of what you're talking about, like, kind of challenging how we're accounting for this and breaking down this previous framework of how we're thinking about our civic life together, I think that's also important that we're I mean, we're bringing in so many voices. We talked, I mean, you had prefaced this story talking about like the immigration that came to Gary that was bringing up Gary and a lot of these segregated communities around Gary. So we have so many different communities, so many different people living here. And then we have these big changes going on too. And I think that's like a breeding ground for so many different perspectives, yeah. right? Especially for segregated in different parts of the city, you're going to have a completely different understanding of what life is like in Gary. So I think specifically that's what makes even telling the, the, the story of what happened in Gary a lot more tedious, right? Because there's so many different perspectives that people have of it. You're listening to Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio with Willow Walsh and Allison Schutte. And we're talking today about uh, history in Northwest Indiana, specifically in the 60s and 70s. Um, and we have a historian that's helping us think through memory. And since the Welcome Project works with oral histories, memory is central to the work we do. Um, and he's raising the perspective that uh, historians who are working with additional documentation might have uh, evidence that constrains the way we remember things. So I wonder, um, in light of the fact that, you know, he realizes that the work that they're, that historians are doing is kind of edgy, he still says memory is an important source. And do you have a sense of why, given the fact that we're starting to understand it might include a lot of subjectivity, why would historians still value it? Yeah, I, well, I think that's an interesting question, right? It's like, why, maybe it's even like, you know, like, why do we collect stories for flight paths? Like, what, what yeah. is so important about it, even when you do find things that aren't consistent with some of the evidence or data or statistics that we could hold it up against if we wanted to? Not all the stories do that. But there, there's something interesting there, though, about seeing how, how varied these perspectives can be. And so I think, like, you know, maybe like trying to as a historian pulling apart those those pieces of oral history and using them with data and evidence that's one story but i think it's also important to recognize like the breadth of experiences that we're having in gary and i i mean it, it is funny right to like learn that memory is this kind of tricky source that isn't always 
truthful in terms of this objective lens. So like, why, why is it so valuable? But I think it's still, to, to bring up your point about memories being valid, I mean, I think it's still valid, right? Because it still shapes who we are and our understanding yes. of ourselves. Yes. So like, I think about like, I have this really vivid memory of like 9-11 and my dad reacting to it on TV. And apparently that's totally not what happened <laughs> whatsoever. Well, like, according to your yeah, dad. Yeah, according to my dad, right? <laughs> who probably has a better understanding of it, but... Yeah. So like, but like that experience, I like in my mind, I remember like being on the floor, he would always like watch meet the press in the morning on Saturdays and remember him watching this footage on TV and like getting up from the couch and like kind of screaming. And like that for me, like that's such a visceral memory for my dad and like Mm. my understanding of like his empathy and how he's feeling. But like that, that's a false memory, but that still shapes how I see my dad to some degree, right? Like even these memories that aren't entirely this video camera lens is still important to not only ourselves as individuals and, and how we see ourselves and interact, but I don't know, it's important because it still feels truthful. So it still feels like we need to talk about it and talk about our different truths to some degree. Well, the other thing that I thought, uh, I'm not sure if I can quite articulate this, is there's like um, a a new story that comes into being if historians, through looking at oral history, sees like a, a kind of disagreement, like some consensus, but also some disagreement. And then it sets up the task for them as historians to figure out like, okay, so how is it that so many white residents are using this language of it became dangerous suddenly overnight? We don't hear that same refrain in black residents. So then the historian actually has a question that they can go back to their other kinds of um, evidence to see sort of like what might actually account for this this reaction of like fear, how much of it is based in fact, and how much of it might be accounted for in other ways, whether it's media portrayal or this like social disorder. So I would think that they would also be interested in it because it leads them to the questions that they then research through these other kinds of sources. I, I, I think you nailed some, or you started to talk about something that has to do with this, like people aren't straight up lying Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder if there's more to say uh, about that. And he brings it up in the sense of like historians not, (laughs) you know, like maybe a little bit defensively as as people are like, hey, you know, what are you doing? Like poking holes in my memory. Like this is this is what happened. And it seems to be a kind of response to that. Like, hold on, I'm not saying you're lying. Um, But how did you interpret or understand like how he thinks it's not straight up lying. Yeah, so I think so I think this might be an important time to bring in Dr. Phelps again who okay. talks about like the types of memories that we form. So the one thing that she points out is that there are three main things that usually contribute to our memories of things, right? Like previously I had talked about like big changes, big life events yeah. or something that okay. people will cement in their memory. But based on these memories, we're only going to remember the story that we tell of them. We're going to remember the place of them and the emotion related to them. That's how our brains are wired to think about things. And so what's really interesting is that over time, like memories of these big events actually deteriorate at the same rate of everyday memories. 
like my, you know, some mundane thing I did a couple weeks ago, like that memory of like 9-11 or like my 16th birthday or something like that, that's, yeah. even though it's a momentous occasion, it's still deteriorating at the same rate as my everyday memories. But the interesting thing is that people have more confidence in these big change oh. memories, which is interesting, right? And like, I would expect that like, yes, my 16th birthday party, I'm sure there's I don't have a whole lot of confidence in what probably happened then. But it's like, you know, this 9-11 memory, I have so much confidence in it. But the problem there is that remember that the main things we're remembering is story, place, and emotion. So people will usually get the place right in terms of where they are. They'll Story gets a little more complicated. I'll touch on that in a second. But emotion plays a huge key into this. So when we're talking about like white residents experiencing these sort of changes, the civil rights movement, like desegregation in Gary, a black mayor coming into leadership. There's this implicit bias that we can have that can actually affect and change our memories. So I'm thinking about a story from Flight Paths that I was just working on previously about, about two white residents who were walking down the street and remember being accosted and being threatened and they felt really fearful and that memory for them feels really solid it feels like they really remember that now i don't know if that story is true or not but if we were to think about this in the lens of Mm. that memories allow us to have gaps outside of emotion in place so let's say they probably got the place right if we're gonna if we're gonna try to throw it into maybe a historical like question here they probably got the place right they probably were walking down but if they felt fear by seeing these black residents, yeah. that can shape the entire memory, actually. Yeah. Like, potentially, that interaction m- might not have been as severe as they're remembering it. But because they felt so much fear and they told other people and they told each other this story, that's where the story comes in. The more times they tell it, the more that they can cement this false memory yeah. and sort of fill in the gaps beyond like emotion. So the place is going to stay there. The fear is going to stay there. But everything else along the way, that can actually morph over time. The story part of it. Yes. And so what the interesting part of it, so you could maybe be saying the story over and over for years. And all that's going to do is cement this potentially false memory in your mind and make you have more confidence in it. So this idea that people people don't know that they're doing that, though. And I think that's the interesting part about this yeah. idea of straight up lying, is that people don't know they're lying. I mean, these folks who are telling the story about being accosted by these black residents, I don't think that they think they're lying. I think that they think that that's completely exactly what happened. And it could be, but what we know from memory, it could also not be. It could also be like they're their implicit bias and the stereotypes that they have that made them feel fear, that made them feel like that situation was more heightened than it actually was and created this false memory. And it's not only individual bias. Like I'm thinking at the time, like what were the newspapers saying? Exactly. What were the uh, TV shows portraying? Like how was the civil rights movement being communicated to black communities to brown communities to white communities and if you're hearing your neighbors tell a certain story and you're hearing that reproduced in media then you're getting a lot of validation for the emotional experience that's starting to shape like what actually happened in that place where you encountered um these people and these events yeah 
Yeah. And we actually know firsthand, like we had another story with um, a former journalist at the Post Tribune in Maryville who said that when there were positive stories about Gary, those only went to like, and we're talking about post 70s, 80s, 90s, those positive stories about Gary only ran in the Post Tribune versions and Gary. Those positive stories, (laughs) they didn't run in Valparaiso and Crown Point and other places. So we do know that like, I mean, if it's happening in the 90s, I'm sure it was happening in like the 60s and the 70s back then. So we know that that's can definitely influence. We know that that was happening at least regionally and that can influence people's understanding. I had forgotten that. And that's just become so exasperated to exacerbated today by the fact that like media can send itself to you in smaller and smaller slices. So now it's not just about like is your local city paper getting the same news as the region? It's like what is your Twitter feed telling you, your Facebook feed telling you, um, the podcasts that you choose to put into your you know media diet. So that's even become more pronounced today, but I hadn't necessarily thought like, I think of it as a new media problem, a social media problem. So I hadn't really remembered that it was already in circulation (laughs) just with like old fashioned newspapers. There's still editors behind those papers. There's still owners behind those Mm -hmm. papers who are making decisions based on what they perceive to be really going on. Um, That is so interesting. Okay. So um, it's the top of the hour. So I would like to remind listeners that it, this is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And you're here with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. Today on Listen Up, we're discussing a piece from a historian we've called In the Light of the, or Memory in the Light of These Sources. And uh, Dr. Carter, the historian, is helping us think through some of the work that the Welcome Project does with oral history and how um, historians who are working with other forms of evidence could really um, benefit, like not only our initiative, but I think communities that are trying to think through public memories and even publicly contested memories. Um, For us in particular, it has to do with race and ethnicity, but of course that can apply more broadly too. Um, I wonder, do you think we should play the story one more time here and then um, and then move forward with some of our Yeah, questions? let's do it. Okay. So this is Dr. Heath Carter and Memory in the Light of These Sources. What makes the work of historians sort of dangerous or edgy in the, in the current moment is that we're finding stories that do challenge people's memory, they challenge people's self-understanding, and um, they call people to understand the question of how we got here differently. There's no question that in the 1960s in Gary and across the country, there's, there is a lot of tension and there's a lot of, there's disorder in the sense that the racial order is, is being challenged and the social order is being challenged, norms are being challenged, new leadership is coming into power. There is a lot of change but I think what, as a historian, what we want to do is to interrogate some of the personal narratives you'll hear. Memory is is an important source for us. We, we, we're interested in what people remember. We're interested in their experiences and their recollections of their family's experiences. But we also recognize that memory is very tricky. And sometimes people remember things 
very differently, as it turns out, from how they happened. And sometimes people remember things that didn't happen. So I, I think what historians want to say is not that people, as they tell stories about what happened, are just straight up lying. Not at all. In fact, and these are stories that are important, and in some sense, they are at the core of people's identity and their story. And so it's, it's not through kind of some sort of willful deceit. But one of the nice things about uh, the, the tools of our trade um, as historians is that we work with evidence, we work with documents, we work with images, and we can actually hold up memory in the light of these sources from the past and get a, a sense of, you know, what is here in this memory that's right and true and actually corresponds to history and, and what in it needs to be modified. Historians are interpreting data. We don't have the final interpretation, the objective take. But we do have evidence that can help to constrain our interpretations. I think in the 21st century, as we continue to grapple with race and we continue to grapple with racial inequality, coming at these foundational questions about how we got here and being willing to engage in critical conversation about them, I think it's an urgent task. I think it's a task that myself and many of my colleagues are, are really committed to. And we, and we know that you can't come in with your history book and bang people over the head with what we would want to say is the, the real story. It's going to be more dialogical than that. You know, I think that historians have something really important to offer in terms of fashioning the, the narrative that we collectively can kind of come together around to understand who we are and how we got here. If you're just joining us, I'm Allison Schutte here with Willow Walsh, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio on WVLP. Um, I know I, I'd like to to maybe start bringing in um, Jocelyn Bart Kavishas, who's a creative nonfiction writer, um, talking about how like writers think about memory. And I think as a way to do that, I'd like to hear you see if, like, what do you, what's this difference or distinction between objectivity and interpretation? So he brings it up here at the end, and I wonder if just as a way to kind of segue, how, how do you sense the difference between objectivity and interpretation? Yeah, so I think like when I, you know, when you're taught about like history books and nonfiction, you want to think that like this is an objective take, this is the way it happened, and you want to believe that it's just, it was as easy as that to document all of these things that happened. But I think what I'm learning here from Dr. Carter is that there is some, like, there's an interpretive aspect of it, because to some degree it is relying on people's experiences there, but it's just held together through the evidence that they do, like, currently have. So I think, I think history, maybe as it's documented, it is less of this sort of video camera lens that yeah. we think it is. And I think a lot more of it is actually just trying to put together the pieces of what we actually know and try to fill in the gaps with what we can support with existing evidence. But I think what's really interesting to me is that when he, when he notes that we have evidence to help constrain our interpretations. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I love that bit. And I, and I wonder, like, that makes me think of... That, that, that idea, and I know you're probably going to bring it up, but <laughs> this idea of, like, the, the writers that are having a dinner party uh -huh. and, like, and they can't, like, you know, everybody could write what happened at that dinner party, right? And it could actually be, you know, 
eight different stories of everybody else who is there. All of it is technically true, right? But it's just written from a perspective. But I think this idea of like constraining our interpretations, you you couldn't in writing that story say, well, so-and-so got up and punched someone in the face. Oh, right. Well, we know like that. I feel like that the evidence that Dr. Carter's talking about is like we can constrain sort of those extraneous details that, that we can sort of prove or understand that didn't happen. But for the most part, we're just trying to take these different accounts that are holding it as true as we can with the data to kind of put together this full story. So it's more like a puzzle than I think I thought it was. Yeah. You know, it feels more like being a note taker or something, but but it really is more of this puzzle that's being put together. Well, and, and Dr. Carter doesn't talk about this, but I can't help but think that, um, you know, historians, scholars, they come across new material um, over time and and not just like new material as in it's never been seen before but it can be understood differently because like i don't know like how we think about things in the world more generally has changed so for example you know like people used to think science used to say that like gender was like it's the same as sex so you were born with your gender and science today has actually helped us understand that sex and gender are different and that gender can actually be fluid. Um, like, because we have that new scientific perspective, like if we were to go back through documents that talk about sexuality in American history, like we would see things that we hadn't ever seen before just because we have a new interpretive lens to help us like actually like, oh, I hadn't noticed um, this fact before. So I think... Yeah, I think that's interesting, too, that there isn't a history that once you constrain the interpretations <laughs> just right will be forever solid. Like we have to allow for. So I don't know, maybe like I'm, maybe I'm challenging the metaphor of the puzzle because I think of a puzzle as something once you fit it all together, you've got the picture and you like probably tear it up and put it back in the box. <laughs> um, but if you were to bring it out again, you'd be trying to put back the same picture and it almost seems like history is a little bit more fluid even fluid than that um and you don't have to wait for me to bring in jocelyn park Kavicious. <laughs> you can absolutely <laughs> bring in the stuff that she's talked about and um for those of you who don't know i mean willow used to be a student at valparaiso university and and i had her in classes where we read this article which is called The Landscape of Creative Nonfiction um, by Jocelyn Bart-Kavicious together. So we're both very familiar with it. I actually, I think I wanted to bring in the, a different section of the article where she and her cousin are re-watching an old home video. And the reason I'm thinking about that is because we would tend to think of a home video as objective. Like there was something there recording the events that happened. And so don't we have like the verifiable facts before us? And yet what she points out in the article is that as soon as the video stops running, they immediately notice that they, they, they're, dis, they're describing what they saw differently. So there's a figure of a stepfather in the home video and Jocelyn sees him as like, twirling around a candle-like torch because she saw him as this like romantic figure that just wanted to embrace life and the world. And 
her cousin saw it very pragmatically as like a bug torch, like a citronella torch or something that he must have been swinging around to keep the bugs away. So it's like <laughs> you have this tape that has recorded what happened and yet there's already immediate disagreement. And that's not even necessarily a huge detail to disagree over. She says that moment is so poignant for them because actually it has it holds this place in their family history um, because of how it kind of how it all played out for their family over time into something more traumatic. But um, yeah, so I just think that that notion of um, that objectivity is it's a little scary to let go of. I, I don't want to live in a relative world where like, well, you see things that way and I see things this way and they must both be like equally true or equally valid. So we'll just go about our business. I mean, we can't. Yeah. We can't just go about our business. Like lives are actually at stake here often. Um, so I wanted to read a quote. Uh, from that section of Bart Kavicious, she talks about, um, she says, the camera recorded the scene for perpetuity. And yet my cousin and I, with similar family experiences, with memories of that moment, because they were both present at the actual recording, and with objective evidence before us, the tape itself, saw it differently. If put alone in separate rooms and interrogated, or given blank sheets of paper and told to write that scene, we would come up with different stories. We both sat at the family table that night, and so the party is in our memories, embedded in the very matter of our brains. And we both watched the tape, separately and together, several times in recent months. Nevertheless, we tell different stories. Which one is true? Which one imagined? And there's a little bit more of the quote, but I actually wanted to pause there <laughs> and just see, like, what do you think? Like, how would you answer those questions that she's posing for the reader? Which one is true between the two of them and which one is imagined? Yeah, so I think that's that's like difficult, right? Because I think they're both true, right? Because they're both looking at the same thing and they're both noticing different parts of the same objective recording. And I think that's the interesting part is that we are just we do have these separate accounts of of what has happened in reality. So like the things that historians would be working from this evidence, these tools that we have, these images, these what feels like static objective reality it can still be interpreted differently. And that just makes me think back to Dr. Phelps, who's talking about like emotion is really what guides yeah. us to remember these specific things. So the fact that if we're having different emotional reactions, like Bartkovicius and her cousin are reacting to that stepfather figure differently, and they're going to see the whole scene differently, and they're going to take the whole scene differently because we're more charged to those emotional aspects of it. And I think that's where memory starts to get a little tricky, like Dr. Carter said. Yeah. So, I mean, Bartkovicius herself says that like both of their stories, hers and her cousins, contain elements of fact and imagination. Both are true, for they are true to how we remember, how we see. They recreate the topographies of our minds. And, you know, for a creative nonfiction writer, that's not necessarily a problem, <laughs> especially once you recognize it, right? Like, 
because then it becomes interesting. And that's like one of her main points in the whole article is, if you understand this about memory, then as a, a writer, you can really dig into what she calls earlier incongruities. So you can begin to like, for example, with the moment of 9-11 for you, like when your dad retells the story from his memory, like how, how can the gaps between the way you recall it and the way he recall it push you in a certain kind of mode of self-reflection to wonder about like, oh, why did I remember it this way? What does that tell me about me? And what might that tell me about my dad? What might that tell me about the situation at the time? And I think that's like when she says they are true to how we remember, how we see, they recreate the topographies of our minds. It's this ownership of the subjectivity, which says like, that's not a problem, but I have to be aware that it's not necessarily accurate or objective in this way that like we want our history to be. So if, if we're going to try to get to a shared public story, because isn't that where Dr. Carter goes, mm -hmm. right? He goes with a narrative that we collectively can come together around to understand who we are and how we got here. I mean, that's another order <laughs> of work that, uh, that a nonfiction writer doesn't necessarily have to do if they're only working, you know, with their own memory for their own, like their own sort of um, contemplation. Like there's, there's, it's like it becomes exponentially more important to do when we're trying to fashion um, a narrative that we collectively can kind of come together around. Uh, yeah, so I, I just talked a lot. Um, <laughs> are you thinking anything? Yeah, so I think there, there's something there, right? There's something that it's like, like kind of like we were talking about earlier, this idea of like, okay, well, we're remembering, we, we've got a lot of different memories happening here. And specifically, if we're thinking about Gary, there's a lot of subjective memories that are happening, even if we're viewing the same things, even though we know that we're not necessarily viewing the same newspapers. But yeah. if we are viewing the same things, we are watching the same TV channels, we are in the same city, there's so many different perspectives at play there. And I think the problem that, that we get into, especially when we're having conversations with our stories and Gary, is that people really want to hold on to their individual like understanding of these moments. And I think the one thing that I, that I would challenge others to do is when we are talking about the history of the region is that thinking about how valid and true your lived experience is, even if your memory, even if you're questioning maybe some aspects of your memory, it still feels really true and it's still a story you might continue to tell. But I think we should just know and empathize with the fact that the person you're you're standing next to or the person who is on the other side of the city has a way have, might have a way different perspective of what happened and but it's just as true and valid to their understanding and their historical understanding of the region so i think i don't think we necessarily need to give up this idea of feeling that our memories are super true and valid and i don't think we need to give that up but i think we need to, to leave a little bit of room in there to not think that our story should be representative of the whole story. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and allow for this more collective understanding of like what is happening for other people. And that's how we can sort of build to this 
broader collective understanding, like Dr. Carter said, like of who we are and how we got there. It's not just going to be based on one person. It's going to be based on all these variety of perspectives that people had during that time. And I think that's what we should probably think about. Yeah. I think I like the way you put like my personal memory is not representative. Like that seems like the step Mm -hmm. that you really need to, or the truth that you really need to engage so that you can allow yourself to continue to pay attention to how you remembered it, but not necessarily assume that that's going to be the story that we need to understand together. Um, I, I mean, I, as somebody who does creative nonfiction, like for me, this is become, I don't know if it's second nature exactly, but I'm relatively comfortable doing it because I've thought about the way that memory that memory works. But I, I sense that some of our people that we've interviewed as a part of Flight Paths or a part of Invisible Project or a part of just our regular like body of stories, that isn't necessarily something that we just learn about. I mean, you listen to a TED Talk. I have an article. We're drawn to those things because we were trying to ponder it in the context of mm-hmm like trying to understand how it's going to influence us as writers. Um, I wonder how tricky it would be to introduce that into an interview we were doing with somebody or if it would even be like appropriate. Mm -hmm. So um, like as we're trying to think about what does this mean for us as, as people who are doing this work on the Welcome Project, like, what do you think the responsibility would be of the storyteller that's sharing their story to be aware of this? Or what do you think the responsibility of the interviewer might be? Or does this responsibility come in at some other point in time, like a public forum or something that we facilitate? Yeah, I mean, I think like, okay, in an ideal world, I think the scenario would be like, we would listen to things like this that that help us, you know, like Dr. Carter and Dr. Phelps, that help us further contemplate some of these incongruities in our memory and, and identify that there might be some gaps there. So we're already thinking about maybe the validity of our own experience, not, not the validity in like our own sense of how important the memories are to us, but just in terms of like how they stack up to other people's experiences and what we know happened during those times. And so I think with that, it's important. So I don't know. I don't know. It's hard, but right. It's just like I, this idea that we would understand this, I, like we would all come together and understand how we might be better. And so once we do sit down with an interviewer and we talk about our story, there's a moment of self-reflection that comes up when we're talking about our story. And when we're thinking, you know, when you're telling that story about, you know, you and your wife in Gary in the 60s, you know, seeing black residents and saying like, well, at that time, you know, it, I think they accosted us and I think it, they were yelling things at us, but maybe thinking more about this, like, I don't know, like, is that, is that totally what happened? Or like, or I want to hear more. So that would be the ideal scenario, right? <laughs> like that's not, that's not going to really solve it. It's not really going to pan out that way. 
But so I suppose that's where it gets a little bit tricky for me because you don't like like Dr. Carter was saying, you know, it sounds like people can get a little combative in terms of like, you know, he's using words like they're not lying, you know, and it sounds like maybe that's not the first time he's had to say that when he's interviewing (laughs) people, right? Like, I'm not saying you're lying, you know? So it's just like, it feels like people would get really sensitive about that maybe in an interview if they haven't had that sort of exposure yet. But to the same degree, we're already creating this space to go back in time and think about these memories. And I don't often think that we have that space on a day-to-day basis, except when talking with friends and family. But in terms of like sharing our story to people who have different perspectives, yeah, we don't really have those instances. So it would be harder to think again about opening yourself up to more perspectives and, and broadening your understanding of what happens. Especially if your experience has sort of uh, this is maybe a judgmental phrase, but hardened you mm-hmm. to like wanting to see other points of view. For example, a lot of white residents have talked about feeling like kicked out of the city, right? So that's a very defensive posture, which I'm trying to remember when I feel defensive, like I'm not necessarily open to people questioning my experience at that point. So, um, I mean, I guess it just is a way of saying, like, that's why that's why it is hard <laughs> to, like, talk about race in America or, like, really look at what it would mean to have racial justice in America. Um, you're listening to WVLP, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte, and this is Willow Walsh. And today we've been doing something a little bit different than what we're used to, where our storyteller for today was a historian, and he's been really challenging us to think about how individual memories are not always um, the final word in understanding what maybe really happened in a community, in a city, in a region. Um, And so he's been challenging us to think about, like, how can we hold our personal memories, which feel so valid and true and unshakable, up against Uh, what historians would bring to bear in terms of other sources that give us a broader picture uh, or understanding. Um, And I guess I just, I feel like even in preparing for this show, I I already had a pretty strong respect for history and the role that it's played for us in our Flight Paths Initiative. Um, But I I feel it even a little bit stronger now because I think there's something about oral history. I mean, I love oral history. That's like the work that pulled me into the Welcome Project. So I want to hear people's people's stories of how they experienced these like really um, conflicted, contested moments in our lives as Americans. Like, I want to know what what did that feel like at the time for you? How did you understand it? And because I'm driven by narrative, too, as a writer, I think that's where things feel like really interesting to me. But um, we we really like we're down in I don't want to say the weeds as a pejorative thing, but we're down in the weeds when we're doing individual experience. And we need somebody to get the bird's eye view that really brings like not just like individual experience, but like how is government reacting? How are nonprofit sectors reacting? Like who's showing up for whom in terms of like investment and disinvestment? And so if we don't have that larger picture, 
in which the individual lives are happening, then we're definitely only getting a partial narrative. We're not getting something we could all come potentially gather around. It feels very daunting. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's also like, um, I guess that's why they call it history. Cause like, could we do it in the moment? I mean, I guess I wish, I wish Heath was here so we could ask him. Or is it something that really scholars need some space from in order to be able to have all of the different forms of evidence that they then sort through in order to, to really see that bigger picture? Yeah. Um, in any case, for me, like as the, the person who's sitting down to talk with somebody, I, I just feel like I, I'm not sure that I would feel comfortable you know, starting, for example, an interview with like, well, let me tell you about memory yeah. <laughs> and how it works. Because before you share yours with me, you ought to know that there's going to be gaps you should be interrogating. You know, it's just yeah. like, so like ethically sitting down with somebody, I feel this impulse to like, let them have their story, um, like their topography of their mind. <laughs> uh but I do wonder for us as on this project, like it I, maybe one other thing to say is like the ethics seem to change depending on what role you're taking. So if you're the interviewer, I feel this certain responsibility to let the person have their experience. If I'm the editor of that interview, I still feel like there's a responsibility I have to that storyteller to portray them the way they want to be portrayed. But I also have in mind, like, I know things about, like, Northwest Indiana history now. And so I actually also want to bring out parts of their story that if I put them alongside other stories could begin to help people, like, ask questions. Like, are these both right? Are these both wrong? Mm -hmm. Like, like where, is the, where is the public narrative that we're going to now tell? So, like, the responsibility shifts depending on which role you're in, but I can't help but feel like I'm always like letting some part go that feels, I don't know, somehow dangerous. Maybe to get back to Carter's word about Dr. Carter's word about edgy, you know, like it's also edgy and dangerous because we might recreate, like re-intensify or re-solidify somebody's false thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, I guess I still feel like there's a sense of worry about that, although it hasn't stopped me from doing <laughs> any of this work, which feels so valuable. So, well, I think there's another part of that too. Like, I think it's interesting that you were thinking about like your role as like the interviewer and the editor. And I was thinking more about the role of like the person who shows up for yeah. the interview in terms of saying their story. And I think like, having those ethics in mind on the other side of things in terms of like allowing people to share their story and then interpreting that as accurately as we can as editors. I think that's the main focus on that side, right? Is to make sure and uphold that. But I also wonder just again, as we're, you know, when you do find yourself in moments where you are recounting memories or, or giving an interview or just telling friends and families about your stories, I just think it's important to think about, 
not necessarily maybe the gaps in your memory. I think that's probably a little too far. <laughs> like that's that's maybe a little too far that I would personally want to go than to think about all the holes that might be filled in by my brain and all the gaps that exist in my memory. But I think we are seeing this to some degree too in terms of like, you know, if I'm on Twitter and I, you know, I click a story on Fox News or if I'm on Facebook and I and I click a story on a, on a comment or something, I've noticed this. If I click a comment from a certain person, you know, I get like a little ding every time they post something mm. and that happens like if you're doing that with like a established publisher on Facebook or something like that so it's it starts to dwindle down and kind of like fine point us into you know the news that we want to hear right and I think some of us are cognizant that that happens but I think some of us aren't but I think that not only understanding that memory has some gaps in it but I think just just on the top part thinking about like we're getting different information and I'm getting different information. So when I think about things, it's going to be different. And so I think maybe that's just where we start. Yeah. <laughs> where we start. Exactly. <laughs> Which is also where we will end today. Um, we're so glad that you joined us today. Um, and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And if you enjoyed the story you heard today from Dr. Carter, you can find more stories like this one on our website at welcomeproject.balbo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts.